Welcome to the Imago Day podcast, a show of philosophical and theological reflections for today's world. My name is Lewis, and I am here with Joe Terry. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing well. Great to hear from you. Today, we are on part three of our conversation on metaphysics. Um, we were going through some of Plato's allegories. Uh, we talked about the allegory of the sun, the allegory of the divided line, and today, we're going to talk about um, Plato's allegory of the cave, as well as um, make a connection um, to metaphysics at large. So, um, Joe, we've talked about the allegory of the cave before, um, yes. but in the context of our previous discussions, um, yeah, can you just can you just start us off by jumping into the allegory of the cave and then just kind of make that connection um, to the divided line and allegory of the sun? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just first and foremost, I think it's good for us to start off once again with the definition of metaphysics, since as the main topic is where we are, um, especially in light of uh, Plato and Aristotle. Metaphysics is the investigation into the nature of reality, uh, questions about existence, essence, being are all uh, at the forefront of uh, metaphysics as a sub branch within philosophy. And one's metaphysics, that is to say one's theory of the nature of reality, will have a um, decisive effect a, a decisive um, uh, effect on one's theory of knowledge, how we come to know what philosophers will call epistemology, and even how one lives, that is ethics or morality. So ethics, so much so metaphysics is seen as a cornerstone in many ways uh, within within philosophy of which all other philosophical branches and inquiries are oriented by means of this um, cornerstone that is metaphysics. And so Plato is uh, really concerned about metaphysical questions. Um, he is sitting where he is uh, historically in relation to those philosophers that came before him. Uh, for instance, uh, Permitides and Heraclides is just to mention two of the pre-Socratic philosophers who they themselves put forth different metaphysical views and ideas. And what Plato is seeking to do is to offer a coherent uh, assimilation of these ideas in order to get a fuller picture of what perhaps reality actually is. And the way he does this is wonderfully poetic. Uh, we've been looking um, in, in these series of podcasts at uh, his book, The Republic, which is a series of books. We've looked at the allegory of the sun, the allegory of the divided line. We've, uh, in the previous two episodes, unpacked uh, what those allegories signified for um, Plato and how they illustrate something uh, deep about the nature of reality itself. And so the allegory of the cave really brings all these elements together. Um, and, and just as a reminder, an allegory is a story that, that is filled with symbolic metaphorical speech. Um, so so that, that is to say that all the elements within, within the particular allegory uh, has a clear sort of um, uh, picture, one-to-one -one picture of, of what, of the actual content of the teaching that Plato is putting forth. And so the allegory of the cave uh, goes something like this. Um, and of course, this is happening in the book of the Republic uh, between Socrates uh, and another interlocutor uh, by the name of Glaucon, which was actually the name of uh, one of Plato's brothers, Glaucon. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know so. that. <clears throat> yeah, and and so, just off the bat, before we go into the allegory of the cave, um, 
Plato is really articulating a vision of both metaphysics and epistemology through the allegory of the cave, which will, again, also have an impact on his understanding of morality, of right and wrong, and how one should live. And so it goes something like this. I'm not going to stay too close to the text here. I'm just going to kind of freestyle this. Um, you know, imagine, um, if you will, um, prison prisoners within a cave that are chained in such a way that they, they can only face the wall in front of them. And imagine, uh, in addition to that, that there are folks behind them in a, in a large uh, pit fire where the, the, the persons behind them are passing various objects in front of the fire so as to cast uh, different shadows on the wall. That the prisoners who cannot move their neck, they're, they're right there, they're chained in such a way where they can only face the wall. They see the shadows. Now also imagine that these prisoners have been in this condition since as far back as they can remember. So all they know are the shadows on the wall. This is all they are accustomed to, is simply the shadows on the wall. Now, uh, also imagine now that one of these prisoners um, escapes or is loosed uh, from, 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 from his bondage and begins to realize that the shadows on the wall, um, which for him is not just merely shadows on the wall, it's all of reality because this is all he knows, is actually just a small facet or an aspect of reality, right? As he begins to turn his head and orient his body, he realizes, my goodness, he's in a far larger construct um, and that there is much more to see than 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 shadows on a wall. Um, he turns around, he sees the fire. His eyes are not accustomed to the fiery light. Uh, his eyes squint. For the first time, he's seeing light directly. Um, and he adjusts himself. He's going through all the emotions that we can imagine one is going through and discovering that w the world is actually multi, multi-layered and multivalent. He, uh, moves his way outside of the cave. He discovers a mouth that leads outside of the cave. He ends up going outside. And for the first time ever, he sees blue skies, green grass, water. He feels the wind against his skin. He sees the sun. And to his complete shock and dismay and utter fear, and he's terrified, um, he realized he's, he's saying something, I must be dead or this is crazy. I can't. I, this, he has no language. Um, he doesn't even have uh, proper concepts to identify the objects that he's seeing because he's never even experienced this. It's never entered into his senses before. Um, he orients himself and he's just blown away. Right, he sees the this mighty light in the sky, the sun, which is illuminating everything around him, um, and he's seeing reality for the first time. He um, decides to run back into the mouth of the cave to let his fellow prisoners know. As he runs back into the darkness of the cave, he's tripping up a little bit. He's bruising himself because his eyes are now adjusted to the outside light. And so now his eyes need to get readjusted to the darkness of the cave. He ends up getting into the cave, but there's a there's a barrier between him and the other prisoners. He cannot reach them. So all he can do is yell out to them. And and he's positioned in such a way where the fire is is behind him. And now he comes across as a grotesque shadow. Uh, and so the, the prisoners who, remember, have don't know or, you know, all they know are the shadows in the wall. They see now this grotesque shadow uh, and this voice of one saying, guys, you got to come out. There's so much more to reality than this. 
Uh, the story ends by saying they have no idea what this man is saying. They think he's nuts, and and they're so actually a- uh, agitated by this that if they were to be set free at that moment, the other prisoners, the first thing that they would do is kill this messenger. <laughs> and that's how the story ends. That's how the allegory ends. And again, because it's an allegory, all of the elements in the story have uh, a meaning, right? They they can be interpreted in a certain way. And so the the shadows on the wall for Plato signify the world of our five senses, what we can see, touch, taste, hear, smell. It's the empirical world. It's what we've talked about in our past uh, um, episodes here. Um, and it's very interesting to, to, reckon, to, to reckon with Plato here that the empirical world is just, for Plato, shadows. It's not actually getting at the substance of reality. And the chains and being trapped in the cave signifies a mind, a soul that has not been properly educated, that hasn't been converted to the light of truth, that that only simply believes what it sees, that is somehow chained to the senses uh, and not considering higher realities of which the things that, that we can perceive in our senses are actually embedded in, that participate in. And I'll kind of get to that in just a moment. And so the cave and the shadow, all that signifies a sort of ignorance, uh, just a sort of simple soul that is oriented to what is seen and and hearing. And the exiting of the cave, coming, being set free and and exiting the mouth of the cave actually signifies for Plato the process of education, um, of, of the soul being converted to the light of truth. Of which when exiting the cave and now being outside, for Plato, this represents, this signifies the intelligible world, the world of the forms. So again, we get the Plato's idea of the forms. Um, for, for Plato, this is reality. Reality in all its full glory is outside of the cave. It's the world of ideas with a capital I or the, the, the intelligible forms. And for Plato, this world is far more real and substantive than the world of the cave and the shadows. But we won't know that until we are properly formed mm-hmm. and educated into this world, right? So the, just real yeah. quick, um, is the allegory of the cave like Ken? the the sequence of events can it be applied to the divided line like because the way that you were describing the symbolism i just Mm -hmm. i thought about the different uh sections of the divided line Mm -hmm. um like the shadows being the the first part the the world of like images yes um and then i'm not sure like about the rest of the story if it fits but it it sounds like it does um into the divided line yeah, you're absolutely right. And and 100% you can apply it. Plato, that's what Plato would want us to do. Which mm-hmm. is why when we when we had the episode on the divided line, I said it would be probably best to set it up in a in a vertical rather than a horizontal way because it it gives that experience of traveling up the line which is in concert with the logic of this allegory of the cave which is coming out of the cave into the light of the sun. So yes, 100%. Um they can they can be matched. The sun represents the fullness of truth in the allegory of the cave. It's, it's the good beyond being, right? This very mysterious and elusive concept, which, which through it gives light and meaning and being to all other things, right? 
um, yet we cannot fully grasp it the same way we cannot fully see the sun with our naked eyes. But we know that the sun is there because it is by virtue of the sun we're able to see outside, right? So this this good, capital G, this transcendent reality, which for Plato itself is beyond being, right? Beyond being, beyond the categories of metaphysics in some way, um, enlightens and sustains and holds all other things together. And so this movement then back into the cave um, and it is desire to help um, his fellow prisoners is really the process of edu- of ed- wanting to educate others. And, and, and what Plato is showing us is the difficulty of that, right? The, the bruises that he, he is receiving as he meanders his way back into the mouth of the cave. His eyes have to get readjusted. He's now trying to reach uh, his fellow prisoners, but he still comes across as very weird and as a grotesque shadow is symptomatic of somebody, a philosopher for Plato, who is seeking to bring the light and the truth to those who have not yet been enlightened. The persons who are hearing this and receiving it is like, what are you talking about? So I want you to envision here the the wild preacher, let's say, on the A train at 9 a.m. as you're going to work. And he's he or she is coming out and saying, guys, God loves you. And that life is far more than this, far more than waking up and going to work. Uh, there's so much more. Your life has meaning. And you're just sitting there trying to go to work like, oh, God, get out of here. Like, what are you, what's wrong? Like you're you're speaking nonsense. What are you talking about? I have to go to work. I need to pay these bills. I what are you talking about? My life is more more than this, right? Just to kind of give you an example there. And so, um, and and what what Plato's uh, articulating here as well, uh, in an amazing way, is what happened to his own master and teacher, Socrates who in his ministry, in his service to the Athenian people, uh, he desired to help folks come into the light of truth through his uh, methodology, what we call the Socratic method of dialectical discussion and and argumentation and, and trying to help folks to come into a fuller awareness of the truth of things. This is what Socrates did, set himself out as a missionary, uh, sort of philosophical missionary. And the Athenians were not having it. They put him on trial. The rest is history. He's killed. And and so Plato is saying, yeah, this is what happens to philosophers when they seek to share this with others. Um, their lives are at, actually at risk. This is the, the, the risk that any educator takes when he or she brings, um, uh, where he or she, as it were, begins to inform people that all that they're concerned about and all that they've been focused on is actually merely shadows. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's far more than that. And so, Do you, do you as mm-hmm. an educator, relate to the part of the, the allegory of, like, just being bruised, <laughs> of going back to the cave <laughs> to, like, try to communicate um i yeah, do, do you, yeah that's a great question man i i i feel like i do and and i think it it, it manifests in a, in a variety of ways for me um the bruising um at times happens uh in my in my attempts to concretize and to communicate ideas that are very high-end ideas um in in simpler language it is that's tough that's a very difficult thing to do you know there's a sort of blood sweat and tears 
Um, and so that that's for me the bruising that happens. And and when my students don't want to hear it, or or when I challenge my students, right? I may say something about, hey guys, I know I know you, you know you're you're, you're you know, here, you know, this is where you are on social media. You're just trying to turn up tonight and have a drink and and and, and go and and hook up with various people. Yeah. But consider that there's more to life than this, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Through the tools of philosophy, they're looking at me like, "Who's man? You better get out of here with that." You know, um, it's just like not that they want to turn around and kill me. Maybe they yeah. probably do. <laughs> they had the opportunity to be like, let's throw this guy out of the classroom, right? Yeah. But um, but this rebellion, right? This mm-hmm. this this pushback. Uh, this like deep skepticism. But what I found is that when I continue to work them over, right, and I do what I can to to make the content applicable so that I do not come across as a grotesque shadow, so that I don't come across in a way that I'm completely unintelligible to their ears, but I'm able to incarnate these ideas and begin to communicate to them that there is a world far richer and brighter and more beautiful, infinitely so, than the shadows that they're concerned about the wall. And that they're actually held captive, that they're manipulated by, and I can go into, you know, various things. Like, so if I'm uh, going into political philosophy and economics, I could talk about uh, rampant capitalism and consumerism and the market economy and how you, when you're walking down Saks Fifth Avenue, or Soho, that in a sense, you are kind of like the uh, the prisoner here who is beholding shadows. And you walk into Armani Exchange and you have the little DJ there and the, and the smells and bells and the nice belts that are $55 and everything. You're just like, I got to get this stuff, right? Because all the images, everything is telling you, you need to be about this life. But when you become unhooked, when you're when you're set free from the chains of, let's say, consumerism and materialism, there's a profound freedom that you have when you walk into the same store of Amani Exchange. You're no longer beholden. You can actually now go in with a purpose and purchase what you want, and you know what you're doing rather than being assimilated by the images and, and the market forces that tell you, you don't even know it, that are actually shaping your taste bud, that telling you, you need to get this. Right. And so when I do that and I, and I do these sort of hermeneutical moves and pedagogical techniques, I'm happy to report that, that, that there are some students that I believe are, are set free. Right. Not everybody, not necessarily the entire class, but a good number of students. I mean, it's a wonderful semester when I have the vast, you know, like, it's like everybody's like, my goodness, I'm walking out differently. I, I actually take that to be a successful class. Um, a successful semester when my students are leaving differently than the way they came in. Their eyes are actually now opened, that they're more aware that, as it were, they are beholding the sun and the and 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 that which is enlightened by the sun rather than shadows. So yeah, I, I have that. I've had that experience. Uh, I have it. I think I have it all the time. I think any good teacher ought to have those experiences of number one, of the bruising, and number two, of the pushback. Because if students are not pushing back, and if you're not obtaining any kind of bruising in trying to make this uh, material relatable and intelligible, I don't know if you're teaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know if you're. It's like it's if, fundamental to teaching. Yeah, to I think it's fundamental that. to teaching. Right? I mean, I can I can go in and just talk way beyond their heads, mm-hmm. and they're not going to get it. So then I'm going to push back on anything. I can say, yeah, I completed a semester. Yeah, but I've never really taught. Good teaching is is incarnating 
the material. It's, it's, it's very similar to the pedagogy of God himself, right? God would become human and, 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 and come to us and encounter us in our own tears and our woundedness and our brokenness and our joys and sorrows. Um, and, and I think good teaching always has that kind of model. Yeah. But this is what Plato's about. This is what he. This is where he's getting at in the allegory of the cave. What's this is uh, fascinating? What's funny is uh, I, I uh, was reminded of the way that uh, Christ was teaching as well. He was he was using parables and and mm. a similar method of of using kind of these allegories in order to communicate uh, abstract concepts about the kingdom. That's right. Um, that is so right. That's so right. is that is is this something about the allegory like? Because, I mean, I'm seeing, I understand why Plato did it. I understand mm-hmm. why Christ does it. Um, and it sounds like when, and even in, on this podcast, you've used a lot of illustrations as mm-hmm. well. Like, is that probably like the best way? Which is funny because like, when I look at the divided line and the first is kind of like the world of images, it's almost mm-hmm. like, it's almost like the allegory operates in that world in order to point to um, like a higher form. A yes. higher being. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think it is ingredient and essential, actually, to use various illustrations. And, and here's the reason why. We naturally think in concert with what we have seen and what we have heard. Um, what I mean by that is that our, our knowledge um, is profoundly informed and shaped by our sensorium what we receive in our, our five senses. And so when when we use allegories in, in any form, in any sort of um, teaching, let's say, what we're doing is, I, I believe, is we're eliciting the, the imaginative front of our mind, which, which, which the content therein comes from what we have seen and heard and tasted and touched. So when I say imagine a cave and imagine someone chained in the shadows on the wall, this is Plato's methodology, by the way, through and through. Immediately, your mind is able to conjure up these images. Have you seen a cave? You know what shadows look like, right? These are all things rooted, right? And then, and then I say, imagine you're there and you don't know anything else and you're set free and you come outside, the sun, da da da. All these things we are aware of because we have, by way of our five senses, have come to know these things. But the power of the imagination is such that we can reinvoke these images that have gotten there by our senses. Um, and then we, we, we see it in the imagination and then the unveiling of it, meaning the interpretation of the symbols, um, just makes the understanding come alive. It's just like, oh, in fact, when I, when I, when I teach the allegory of the cave and I, and I try to do it in a very theatrical way in the class, it's amazing. You can hear a pin drop when I do this. And when I begin to unpack, uh, uh what Plato means with, with these symbols, I mean, the class is viscerally moved. It's like they are profoundly moved by this. They're like, my goodness, that is so deep. And and of course, good um, media does this. I I think of the movie The Matrix, right? It's a classic example of a a high-tech visualization of, as it were, the allegory of the cave. That is a whole nother world, you know? Somewhat inverted, though, because the world of illusion is the prettier world than the, the world of reality, right, of Zion and stuff and whatever. But, but it's, still, it's still this, this thing, you know? And yeah, so I, I, think it's ing- I think it's hugely important. I think this is what makes uh, Jesus a, an excellent teacher. Uh, he, he uses 
the agricultural context that he is that he is within to articulate heavenly realities. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like uh, a pearl of great price uh, that was planted in the field. Somebody came and bought the field and discovered, or before they bought the field, they discovered the pearl of great price. They they buried it again, then they purchased the entire field just to get that pearl, right? All of these, all of these things are that the average Joe Smoke can get it. Like, oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> when you read Aristotle, you don't have much by way of illustration and allegory, not nearly compared to, to Plato. And, and Aristotle is teaching at a very high level. Just different style. Um, yeah. uh, and I'm sorry, can you remind me of the order? Is Aristotle a student of Plato? Yes, yes. Okay. Aristotle was a, for 20 years, he studied okay. under Plato. Um, wow. Yeah, he's a prize student. And, um, you know, he goes his own way, as it were. Uh, but, dude, it's, it's, a, it's a wild thing. And so, just connecting it very briefly, um, the metaphysics of the allegory of the cave, I think, is quite clear, right? That that full reality can only be discerned um, by way of proper education, right? Um, uh, full reality exists outside of the cave. Um, the sun, again, going back to the allegory of the cave, uh, oh, excuse me, the allegory of the sun. Um, and so you see the you see the two tiered system, as it were. Um, so for, for, for Plato, the cave, inside the cave, is actually the empirical world. That's the world of our senses. Outside of the cave is the intelligible world of the form. So again, that two-tiered system of reality. And the epistemology follows clearly behind that as well, that if you want to come to know the truth of anything, you need to go beyond mere sight. You can't just, you can't just see shadows and, and discern the truth of, of substances. You need to, y- your soul, as it were, needs to be completely reoriented. It needs to be converted to, to exit the, the, the cave in order to see things as they truly are, right? Because in the, in the darkness of the cave, you only see, you know, shadows, as it were. Um, yeah. What does, so th- what does that look like uh, practically? Yeah. On a practical level, how do you, how do, you do that? Yeah. Um, in terms of what sense, like, like, like in, in terms of teaching or in terms of like one's in own terms self? of like just understanding the world outside of the empirical outside of the senses, how do you, how, how do you break those chains? Yeah, that's a great question. For Plato, there are a few ways of doing this. One is by way of abstraction. And that's just a fancy word of saying, um, let's say if we're looking at a green leaf, I'm looking right now at a tree and outside of my window, and I begin to abstract the qualities of this tree, which simply means I begin to break apart the, the constituents that make up the tree intellectually in my mind. And I see, for instance, uh, a certain shape of a leaf. I see the color of the leaf, that it's green. Um, and, and so on and so forth. And I say I take that that green, greenish, right? And I contemplate on green. Now, if I if I have if if I have a sort of understanding of what green is, right? Which we may assume we all do, right? But if I've contemplated the form of green, which sounds a weird, sounds like a little weird, I will be able to say far better than the average person who hasn't done that whether or not the green that I'm perceiving on the tree is either closer to true greenness or less close to true greenness, right? So an art, so an artist, as an example, is able to do this, 
particularly well because an artist, let's say a visual artist, is is accustomed to the palette of the eye where they're able to discern um, shades and the form of certain colors more readily than the average person. Like, yeah, that's green, that's green. And Plato will say you could prove this by pulling out something that we would say is green and put that, juxtapose that with something else that's green. And we realize, oh, wait a minute, that's more green. Wait a minute, right? Where the artist will kind of already know that, right? The artist is accustomed to shades and gradations and the form of greenness, which for Plato, you can never actually see the form of greenness with your physical eye. That's something that you can only arrive intellectually, you see. And so that move right there, that whole conversation, that whole abstraction is how we can move beyond our senses into what is subsisting or, or, or what is the background, the fullness of reality that's holding and suspending the physical reality uh, that we see. And, and that's where we get that phrase, and it's a big word, right, the big two words, participatory ontology, right? Participatory meaning to participate in. Ontology means being. And so for Plato, all the things that we can uh, perceive with our senses are never the fullness of reality. Remember, that's just the shadows. Uh, the fullness of the reality can only be gotten by, if that makes any sense, through our through our abstraction, through the intellect. And the intellect has to be trained in doing that. You can't just imagine it, right? The, the intellect has to be trained in order to see the truth beyond sight. And and so um, the, 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 the leaf, the green leaf is green in as far as it participates in greenness, right? So that notice that dichotomy, that, that, that sort of split, right? That that green, the green on the tree is not green in and of itself as if it, it has claimed. No, it's a contingent being and is predicated on, is depending on, it's dependent on something higher and deeper, which in terms of color here, Plato would call it the form of green, right? Which, which the form of green gives greenness to all things that are green in different shades in the physical world. It's a very weird way of getting at it, but, um, for Plato, this safe, this safe, this safe, safe, safeguards us from skepticism and where we say, well, no one really knows the truth, et cetera, et cetera. And for Plato, of course, one may think that if they're stuck in the cave, because everything is just shadows until they've mm -hmm. been liberated and see the truth of things. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You use the word uh, form. Yeah. Um, what do you, what do you mean by form? Yeah. So it could, it could also be the word idea and form are interchangeable for Plato. Okay. Uh, but but the word form or idea here, capital I, capital F, signifies a transcendent reality that exists only in the intelligible world. So when I said the form of green, um, what what I what I mean here using Plato is the essence of greenness, as it were, the concept of green. Which for Plato, and he's very serious about this, is not a not something merely in our head. It, the concept is not something just in our minds, right? Uh, the essence of green actually exists in the the transcendent, intelligible world, right? This is now a two tiered system, a metaphysical system. So the form or idea simply means a transcendent, intelligible essence uh, or being by which 
the things that we see with our senses participate in or another way of putting it is is a poor copy of or a poor reflection of these transcendent intelligible realms so um think of an architect an architect is trained to contemplate uh and know various geometrical objects uh, structures and forms and the, the architect is concerned with uh, form and function a good architect is educated in this which means that their minds have grown accustomed to perceiving the intelligible forms of these realities of form and structure of right geometry etc etc and when the architect sits down to begin either on their pad their computer or sketch it out to lay out the blueprints of this of this construct that they want to put produce right let's say a building they are drawing from this intelligible world and putting it into uh, artistic expression through the same blueprints which captures what they're thinking of what they're contemplating when they move from from the intellect to the image there's something that is lost there's something that is lost for Plato. When we move from the intellect, this intelligible world, to actually constructing this object. Now we have the building in front of us. I think of Freedom Tower here, one world tower, right? As beautiful and as immense and as, as fantastic as this object is in form and function, we can easily see the various perturbations, wrinkles, and flaws within it, right? Because, why, why? Because... The empirical world, the physical world, is the world of flux. It's the world of change. It's the world of, of it's, it's temporary. It's not eternal, like the intelligible world. Uh, the intelligible world, we can, we can behold perfection. We can write eternality. But when the minute we concretize it and put it in the world of space and time, now it's contingent. Now it's finite. Now it's it's open to decay and entropy. Uh, there were mistakes, perhaps somewhere in either the blueprints or in the construction of the material, and so on and so forth. And so we can never find perfection in the here and now of space and time. Perfection can only be beheld through the intellect that's been trained to see those realities. Again, it's not just imagination, but it's the mind, the mind entering into this transcendent, intelligible world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so metaphysics is kind of looking, is looking at that, but we are doing it from this empirical world that mm. already has limitations. Yes. That's inescapable. It's, it's, yeah. it's given to us. Yeah. And, and, and there are differences now, right? That's, that's just as Plato's way of approaching it. Aristotle is going to have a, a, a different approach with regards to the relationship between form and materiality and, and, and the senses. Plato definitely has, excuse me, Aristotle definitely has uh, a greater confidence in what our senses, what our five senses can discern and the ability to abstract um, from what we see rather than our minds actually entering into another world. Um, and there are some debates. There, there are conversations right now uh, among scholars as to whether or not Aristotle is making a clean break with Plato or is he just building on what Plato has established and, and maybe trying to attempt to offer some correction. Or was Aristotle wrong 
in his reading of Plato, right? I mean, those are very interesting conversations that are happening. But I say that to say that there are different paths and different methods in exploring metaphysics. I don't, I don't want us to leave thinking that Plato's way of approaching things is the only way. I think, however, that Plato's understanding of participatory ontology and all of this is true. I happen to believe it to be true um, and deeply relevant um, for a number of reasons. But there are other ways of approaching this as well. And, and, and Aristotle is a, gr a great lens uh, by way of seeing it from, from a different angle.